This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Massachusetts has been extremely effective in attracting a vibrant high-tech industry owed in no small part to its abundance of research and education institutions and a highly skilled labor force. But Massachusetts is also appealing for its welcoming business climate and its middle-of-the-pack flat income tax of 5%. But long-standing state budget challenges made more apparent by the pandemic may soon tempt lawmakers to make choices that could destabilize our delicate business ecosystem. Growing obligations to fund Medicaid and pension and debt obligations, coupled with the cost of recovering from a year-long lockdown, could encourage lawmakers to avoid difficult reforms and instead seek new revenue from the innovators on which our economy relies. As the dust of a difficult year settles, legislators and their constituents must decide how best to address the shortfalls of the past without doing damage to the promise of our state's future. Joining me today is Chris Anderson, president of the Massachusetts High Technology Council. The council represents senior leaders of technology companies, professional services firms, and research institutions. Chris will share with us the features of what he refers to as the Massachusetts product that his members see as an attractive place to invest and grow, and what concerns those members share about the policy choices ahead for the Commonwealth. When I return, I'll be joined by Chris Anderson, president of the Massachusetts High Technology Council. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. I'm now joined by Chris Anderson, the president of the Massachusetts High Technology Council. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, Joe. Nice to be here. Thanks. Chris, for the benefit of our listeners who are not familiar with your organization, can you tell us what the Massachusetts High Technology Council is, who are your members, and what do you do? Sure, Joe. Happy to answer that. So the the High Tech Council is an organization of primarily CEOs and senior executive officers of predominantly technology firms, of which there are now a very diverse array in Massachusetts, uh, but also professional service organizations and research institutions. And for the most part, our members are headquartered in Massachusetts, although we do have some large out-of-state firms that have a North American or uh, American headquarters here in Massachusetts as well. And our mission is really pretty simple. We look at the state as a product and we try to make the product as competitive as possible to create jobs and support the growth of our innovation economy. So typically that follows, uh, follows into two core pillars one around our talent development pipeline, because as we all know, an educated workforce is essential to support the innovation economy. And the other is intuitive. It's a um, competitive environment. What are the conditions that support additional investment that recruits and retains employers and allows our state economy to reap the benefits of a robust and thriving private sector? So I like that analogy of uh, seeing Massachusetts as a product. I, I'm, I'm going to steal that for me for future shows. Please um, do. Uh, before we get into the uh, details of um, where I want to take the show today, I'd like to start at the beginning with uh, current events. Uh, we're, we're looking at the end, I hope, of the uh, the coronavirus 
epidemic. Uh, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the past year has been an unusual one for your organization, I'm sure, as it has been for all of us. How has your organization fared during this uh, uh, past year? Well, the council and our, and our members uh, have typically found a, uh, an expected resilience. Uh, we, we all pivoted quickly. I think that uh, there was a shock period at first. Um, but, you know, the, the switch to remote work, which characterized much of what happened throughout the High Tech Council and its membership, was pretty instantaneous and it worked pretty well. And I think over the course of the year now, we're, we're marking the one year anniversary, we found that uh, many of our members can be productive, innovative, they can excel, they have accelerated innovation. And their pivot was so quick, they were able to support their employees, community and their customers in a way that, while not surprising, probably was surprising, almost as surprising as coming up with a vaccine in under 12 months when the over under was probably one and, one, one and a half years to four years. So a lot of innovation um, was uh, you know released on the plus side. Sure, do you see those uh, changes? I mean, as you say, we're coming up on a year, it's been fairly persistent. We seem to be firing on all cylinders now. Uh, do you see that uh, change persisting after the end of the pandemic? Yeah, that's the big debate right now, Joe. Uh, most of our organizations are actively strategizing uh, what kind of future of work environment they're going to be imposing uh, and thriving in. So the hybrid model uh, is probably the one that we'll see the most use of, hybrid office and work. Uh, McKinsey and company has done some research and found that 70% uh, of large employers uh, are going to consider some form of permanent changes to the remote work, uh, allowing work from home for full-time selected staff, uh, part-time for selected staff. They'll probably do more training and events online than in person, at least initially, uh, <clears throat> and a lot of reduced travel-related activities. And we see that in projections throughout the travel uh, industry as well. So I think the, the part that's persistent will be uh, some form of hybrid remote work is here to stay. And that opens up a whole range of options when you're trying to recruit and retain employees and offer incentives, particularly those with elder care or child care issues uh, or otherwise long commutes or trying to recruit a candidate in a low cost state who now doesn't have to relocate to a high cost state. These are all going to be factors that we don't have the answers to, but we're still in the process of discerning. I want to develop that theme a little more uh, later. Uh, again, coming back to your theme as uh, uh, Massachusetts as a product, now that we're sort of seeing light at the end of the tunnel, this COVID-19 epidemic, a lot of the, uh, uh, if you see us as a, pro a product or a, a something that someone wants to buy, uh, when they're looking at Massachusetts to cite their business or to come to work, um, before the pandemic started, uh, Massachusetts had some structural advantages and some disadvantages. How would you rate the state as a product? Uh, we're competing with 49 other states and with every other country in the world. Uh, how would you size this up before we, we got into this pandemic? Yeah, so in brief, I'd, I'd draw a line down the middle of the page. On the left side, I would put things like uh, the weather, uh, quality of life, uh, the, the environment that uh, our clusters promote in terms of innovation. On the other side of the page, 
Joe, I'd list uh, issues that are more, I would say, government uh, oriented, the policies. And quite frankly, the state has thrived up, up until the pandemic hit, despite increasing uh, government cost creep, I would say. They're all modest, but you know, slowly over time, over the past four or five years, the cost of a job has greatly increased in Massachusetts. Uh, <clears throat> but the backdrop of that is very concerning. So if you look at the state budget, 60% of the state budget pre-pandemic was dedicated to three mandatory areas of state spending. Medicaid, which is our whole mass health, public health section, uh, unfunded pension liability, and debt service. When you put those things together, you accommodate for 60% of the budget. All of that private sector growth was being sucked up in large amounts by those three areas, squeezing out what was left for what most people think should be critical priorities around transportation, education, economic development, public safety, that type of thing. So those problems existed. Uh, COVID-19, I think, has exacerbated the underlying foundation, but nobody's focused on it because of the massive federal government fiscal response to each of the states in the midst of the pandemic. So I want to explore that further, but do you see the challenges, the the, the government side of that line as being a challenge from the revenue side? Um, you know, taxes aren't low and aren't high enough, or do you see it more with the spending side? Well, I think it's a combination, right? So we've got uh, we've we've got a pretty decent tax revenue generation problem. So I don't think taxes are too high or too low. Quite frankly, I think they've been just right. Uh, however, on the spending side, because of that that expanding sixty percent bubble over time, the squeeze out effect is is very real. And so, what that does, it creates a tension, obviously, between government decisions to either reduce spending in areas that I just mentioned, or try to find new revenue sources to feed that ever expanding uh, percentage of mandatory state spending. And that's where the tension has has begun to come into play pre pre-pandemic. Um, and it's certainly now part of the discussions as we focus less on the health impacts of COVID and more on the long-term economic recovery and what strategies are best for Massachusetts. Well, listeners of our show will know that we do cover quite a bit uh, issues surrounding uh, healthcare costs in the state. And you've identified that as a major source of, of uh, cost for the state. Uh, but I want to focus more on the, on the revenue. You said it's just about right. Uh, I, I've noticed that Mass High Tech Council has been opposed to uh, many new tax proposals, in, in particular, uh, what I'm going to call the uh, income tax surcharge. Um, it's been proposed in the past many times, um, first as a, a citizen's referendum, now as a legislative referendum. Uh, can you say, uh, tell for our listeners, because we really haven't addressed this, uh, what is that surtax? Um, what are your thoughts on it? Why do you oppose it um, and, uh, or, or not? Sure. So uh, in, in a brief history, Massachusetts voters have rejected an effort to establish a graduated income tax five times since 1962 when the first attempt was made. Why was the attempt made? The attempt was made because the state constitution imposes a, a uniform flat income tax on all taxpayers. So <clears throat> that tax has generally been 5%. It's been occasions when it's been a little higher, a little lower. Uh, Progressives 
uh, would like to follow the trend that they've seen in many other states, and in fact, our federal government, which has a graduated tax. Therefore, the lower your wage, the lower the tax rate. And as your wages increase, the tax rate on those wages increases as well. Now, in Massachusetts, uh, you have to change the Constitution in order to get to that graduated income tax formula. And the last five attempts, as I mentioned, were defeated fairly soundly by Massachusetts voters who were basically skeptical that the legislature would only tax higher income residents and that at some point they would end up caught in this new tax trap as well. In 20, headed to the 2018 ballot, the proponents decided to change the Constitution and put the rate, the tax rate in the Constitution. Uh, that was defeated, um, not at the ballot, but by the uh, invalidated by the Supreme Judicial Court that ruled it was unconstitutional for a citizen's initiative to mix unrelated topics. And that would be spending on transportation and, trans and spending on education as the beneficiary of the alleged new tax revenue. When that was ruled unconstitutional in 2018, based on a lawsuit filed by the High Tech Council and four other organizations, the legislature decided to refile it as their own. Um, the constitution allows the legislature to combine unrelated topics in a measure like this, what the court called log rolling in the, in the court case that we prevailed on. Uh, and so the, the uh, proposal is now headed to a 2020, a possible 2022 statewide ballot vote by Massachusetts residents if there is a, an additional constitutional convention vote by the legislature to send it there. So what that means is, in a nutshell, a proposal drafted in 2014 for a world that is now going to be just about eight years different than it will be if this proposal is enacted, uh, is word for word the same in 2014 as it will appear now. And as we have been talking uh, briefly, but the pandemic has lowered barriers to exit. And we have a lot of unknowns in terms of what the fundamental shift COVID-19 is going to create on our economy. So, in a, you know, the bottom line here, Joe, is that uh, there are so many things that, you know, in, in flux that it's inconceivable that a eight-year-old draft of a proposal that's so fundamental and so permanent is still nonetheless thought of as prudent for the legislature to put before the voters of Massachusetts. So uh, I want to take a little, uh, get a little more specific on on this uh, this tax. Uh, can you give dimensions? Where does at what uh, uh, is it on income and at what income level and at what is the rate? And we all know uh, we have a wonderfully balanced flat tax now, five percent. It's easy to remember um, and it applies to all of us. Uh, what would this tax look like? Uh, so any anybody with a personal income in excess of $1 million would see a, an additional 4% tax apply to that additional income. So essentially, you're taking a 5% flat tax and creating a uh, two-stage tax uh, schedule where the highest earners would be uh, paying 9% rate. That would put us fifth highest in the country for the states that have uh, higher marginal tax rates than lower. And the, the key there isn't that it's just on 
income or you know, high wealth individuals because uh, who are repeatedly filing income taxes with high incomes. This is a proposal that would affect anybody who sells a home or a business uh, theoretically one time. So when somebody has successfully <clears throat> uh, run a business for a while, uh, they will likely be subject to this tax when it's time to sell their business. The uh, other key feature here, Joe, is that it's, uh, I call it permanent because when you, it's a, it's a lot lengthy process to amend the state constitution. Um, Massachusetts would be the only state to impose a tax rate in the constitution. And basically it means that the legislature, if something happens, uh, it would take at least four years probably longer for the legislature to remedy that particular tax rate by further amending the constitution. It's, uh, I think it's an abdication of what the legislature's responsibility is with regard to tax and revenue uh, and expenditure setting. But nonetheless, this is the effect that we would see here in Massachusetts. So let's talk about how we get into this tax and then perhaps how we how hard it would be to get out of it. Right now, we, it's passed, I think, two legislative sessions and will go in front of the voters. You mentioned that it has a, a, a long history, but it's failed uh, every time in the past. The last five times it's uh, been in front of voters, it's overwhelmingly been voted down. Uh, what's different this time? Why do you think Massachusetts wouldn't uh, vote it down with the same enthusiasm as, as it has in the past? Well, I think they, uh, I think they would if it was presented as it was the five previous times. And, and by the way, the legislature does have one more required uh, vote before this does make it to the ballot, so it's not a, a done deal yet. And that's why the legislature, because of the past record of of uh, voters voting against this measure, decided to you know sort of flip the script and say, "All right, we hear voters are skeptical." of the legislature tweaking the rates later once we have this power to impose a graduate income tax rate. So we're going to convince or try to convince voters that by locking the rates in the Constitution, they don't have to worry about us coming back and starting to jigger the rates down on on the next level of income. Um, And we're also going to create a uh, target for how we're going to use the new money for transportation and education, both of which poll near the top of everybody's wish list. Now, there are a couple of problems with this scenario. Uh, The first, as a result of our successful lawsuit, is in the majority ruling by the Supreme Judicial Court, and as agreed to in oral argument by the Attorney General, the legislature has no restrictions on how they use any of this new money. So there is no guarantee, for example, this is the the log rolling or the unrelated topics. There is no guarantee uh, that a voter can have confidence in that this money will only go to education and only go to transportation. In fact, it could go to further un, you know, fund unfunded pension liability or, or anything that's important or a priority or unimportant uh, as deemed by the legislature. So the, uh, the allure of where the money goes is now no longer in play. If I were a voter, I'd be very worried about having anybody lock rates on any other class uh, in the Constitution. And the best example of that is what happened in um, places like uh, New York, for example. Uh, New York's a great example of the 
high number of high wealth individuals who lost their state and local tax deduction uh, during the most recent federal tax reform effort by the former administration. Uh, but because we did not have high taxes locked into our state constitution, Massachusetts was in a more flexible position to adjust. So basically it's a, it's a, a brief illustration, Joe, that um, if the state legislature has to respond to conditions, either pandemic related or federal government related or any other issue, it makes it very, very difficult and time consuming uh, to back out of a new tax that's locked into the constitution. So you see, you see one of the major problems is it, it, it takes away the flexibility that any legislature should have uh, for un, unforeseen problems in the future. Absolutely, locks, locks that decision into the constitution. So let me uh, push back a little bit and say, okay, many of our listeners uh, don't earn more than a million dollars a year. Um, why should they be concerned that those who do would see an increase of effectively 80% on, on their marginal rate? Uh, why should they care that this would be imposed effectively on someone else? And that's a great question. And it shows up in usually early initial polling on, hey, how do you feel about taxing people that make a lot more money than you do? Um, but when you cut through it uh, and you, you realize a couple of things, and, and we're going to, I'm going to use Connecticut as an example, which I've been using. Well, that's yeah. terrific. Uh, listeners of the show, we did a wonderful show on, uh, on Connecticut and their challenges when they did something very similar. But uh, please tell the story. Yeah. So during the last round, I'd, 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 I'd discuss this issue and, and say uh, Massachusetts could become Connecticut in a New York minute. And then people start listening and go, wait, what, what, what do you I mean? Like that. Uh, I may that. borrow that. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's exactly what happened. So let's see what happened in Connecticut. While Massachusetts enjoyed a flat tax over the last forever, Connecticut slowly has been increasing tax rates on higher wealth individuals. And what's happened to the economic performance of, of Connecticut? It has been uh, a long, slow recovery back to break even from the 2008 recession. Their budget's only grown 22% over that period of time. Massachusetts, by comparison, with a flat tax has grown 67% in terms of our state tax, uh, uh, our state budget, driven by the strong private sector performance. So what happens if we adopt a proposal like this, and you're not somebody who's in the personal income tax bracket of a million dollars or higher. I would worry, Joe, about the outmigration of jobs, employers, and those high income residents. This is exactly what happened in Connecticut. And the, the net effect was not only did they not achieve the revenue gains that they thought they were going to get, the revenue gain, the, the revenue expectations dropped, uh, residential property values declined, and the general economic pressures uh, around the budget that were not supported by a growing private sector uh, became increasingly challenged. Now, I, I think the people in Connecticut and a few other states, uh, in, in a weird way, are benefiting from the federal government response to the pandemic, bailing them out with federal tax dollars in the name of COVID-19 for problems that existed long before the pandemic hit. Uh, but I'll just say that the, the that economic mess uh, imposes pretty much a trap on people who are unable to leave. And it's the, those are usually the hourly wage earners, middle-class people, um, <clears throat> And if you can't leave the state, 
and the people with resources and job creating capacity do leave the state and the state sees declines in tax revenue, they're going to have to get it from somebody. And it's going to have to be whoever's left in the state. And that's why in Massachusetts, we have this precarious challenge of realizing that 60% or more now of the state budget is dedicated to mandatory spending. If we lose even a fraction of the highest wealth individuals, we could be on the verge of having uh, uh, re required spending cuts, which are politically unpopular, and in this progressive legislature unlikely, or increases on the people who are left here in Massachusetts to make up the difference. Indeed, uh, we, we covered uh, Connecticut for those very reasons. We also talked about with an economist from California who uh, saw similar, a, the outflow of particularly high earning people doubled uh, after the tax. I think um, a lot of people imagine that million dollar threshold to be the idle rich. But of course, if you are idle rich, you're paying long-term capital gains, not income. Uh, these are the employers, right? These are the people uh, creating the jobs. Um, uh, do you have any, uh, let's say, anecdotal stories of uh, what you think um, would uh, a typical high earner, uh, how they would react? What, what would be the effect? Would they effectively uh, not build that extra factory? Would they, are they apt to leave, uh, perhaps go to New Hampshire? What is the profile of, say, your members? What do you think the reaction would be? So the profile of the folks that would most likely uh, change their behavior. I mean, that's what we're really talking about. Investors, innovators, entrepreneurs, philanthropists. Uh, Massachusetts benefits greatly from a number of well-known and unknown philanthropy in, in this region. And a commonly known fact is that if you change your domicile, let's say in this case to avoid a, an 80% increase in your personal state personal income tax liability, uh, your, the boards that you sit on, the causes that you contribute to, are all going to be measured by the Massachusetts Department of Revenue uh, and, and watch very closely to make sure that you are effectively changing your domicile. And we lose out when philanthropy or uh, companies that are based here decide to leave or begin migrating out of the Commonwealth. It, it, it diminishes the quality of corporate engagement civic engagement and philanthropic engagement. And I, I worry about those who are most mobile. We have an economy that's extremely innovative. That's a very mobile part of our state economy. And I've had uh, many anecdotal discussions with, you know, a lot of folks who say often to me, you know, we have a lot of choices about where to be. Uh, we're courted all the time by uh, parts of the world, but also other parts of the United States who really view government and private sector as partners. And, you know, they, they really value uh, the, the factors that go into why they stay or why they leave. Right now we have reasons for people to stay in Massachusetts, but those reasons are being eroded by impending large scale permanent changes in our, in our public policy welcome mat for businesses. I just think that the folks in Massachusetts, uh, from the administration to the House and the Senate, uh, really need to consider in this pandemic period that is largely reshaped by lower barriers to exit and new and unknown uh, strategies around what the future of work will look like, 
and what that future work will mean for new shared priorities that you know we've got to we've got to do a much more uh, robust job of evaluating the policy decisions that are before us today so that those individuals who have options uh, decide to maintain their engagement uh, right here in Massachusetts. Well, so I want to bring together some of the themes you've covered. You mentioned at the top of the show that um, the COVID has reshaped the way many of your businesses are, are working. More people are remote uh, and they're getting the job done. Um, do you think the, uh, these adaptations to the pandemic uh, will accelerate a trend for, uh, again, to bring another theme in, uh, for employers choosing the product, the state, will, will uh, a less attractive product combined with an easier ability to, uh, to flow somewhere else, is this the perfect storm looking at uh, Massachusetts' future? Well, you know, one way to look at it, Joe, is that um, if you're not cynical, you'd say, gee, we've got a lot of brain power here. We've got a lot of uh, healthcare research, university research, which is a combination of private and public sector and federal government. Uh, a lot of the work that went into accelerating a vaccine for COVID-19 has roots all over Massachusetts, either directly uh, or indirectly in the supply chain. That is a terrific example of what our Massachusetts economy has that I, I think no other state in the nation has. Uh, despite the higher costs and lousy weather in the winter um, <clears throat> that can't compete with Florida, it's, uh, you know, it's a potent set of resources that we still have. But those resources are at risk. And, and I can't underscore that um, deeply enough. And, and the risk isn't that the weather's gonna change uh, so much as the, the, the welcome mat for businesses, investors, job creators is going to change from welcome to Massachusetts to welcome to Connecticut. And we're, we're moving in that direction. I think the next couple of years are gonna be, uh, next, next year will be very uh, important uh, on, a, on a bunch of these issues. And they're not all just directly related to the surtax. You've got a, I just mentioned this one other example. All Massachusetts employers are looking at uh, a huge new tax to pay for the unemployment compensation trust fund, which has drawn down heavily this year, not surprisingly due to the pandemic. But uh, for many of the industries that have permanently lost businesses or, or uh, jobs in food, beverage, hospitality, for example, we've got other employers that are going to be picking up the tab uh, in excess of $5 billion over the next several years. Even if the state legislature freezes rates this year, that bill doesn't go away. Now, part of what we are looking at is the fact that the federal government has supplemented weekly unemployment paychecks to the tune of $600 initially. At $600, 80% of the recipients of unemployment insurance across the country were making more money per week on unemployment than they were in their jobs. The, the incentive to get people back to work doesn't match the fiscal support or incentive to keep them out of work right now. And that, that supplemental uh, weekly support for unemployment is going to continue now until early September under the new federal scheme at a lower rate. But nonetheless, that 
builds that tab that businesses will have to pay back into an extended duration unemployment uh, insurance trust fund drawdown. So there are a number of these factors that are fairly large. And I think Massachusetts, you know, going back to the cup is half full, has an opportunity to demonstrate to employers that some of this federal money that's pouring in and eliminating the fiscal crisis that we all thought was going to uh, uh, be facing us uh, last summer could be used to not only replenish the state's rainy day fund, but replenish the unemployment insurance trust fund, for example, to mitigate the amount of money that you know, employers have to put back into that thing. So there are a number of factors at, at play here that um, we'll see play out in different timelines over the next 12 months, but clearly um, the opportunity to uh, work collaboratively and avoid some of these issues if we wanna keep the product strong that window is increasingly closing. And I think it would be my bottom line on this is while the strategies about return to work, future of work, impact on our economy, changing priorities regarding you know, transportation uh, <clears throat> and healthcare, until those become a little clearer, I think we have to be very cautious of making any long-term permanent policy changes that inadvertently have consequences that maybe some of us are warning, warning about, but become uh, that, that exacerbate the ability to support a sustained economic recovery. I have to ask then, if if, if taxes on high earners uh, have the negative negative effects that you describe, uh, and we all want uh, better uh, schools, education, better transportation, uh, we all know how poor the the T works, uh, perpetually crumbling uh, roads and bridges. Where would you and your group uh, suggest the the changes come? Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an open ended question there. If not in new revenue, yeah. I, well, I, I don't think for for me right now it would be a new revenue source. As I mentioned, we've uh, our strong economy has generated uh, revenue growth higher than even current pandemic budget projections. Uh, I think February was about twenty five percent ahead of the benchmark, and on average, it's. Uh, uh, not that high, but it's we're, we're chugging ahead. So we still have momentum in our private economy. We've got a number of permanent jobs that have been lost. But the legislature's obligation, and by the way, when you look at unemployment, that's all private sector unemployment. Government employees have been pretty flat, pretty you know, insulated from the economic job loss caused by the pandemic. Kind of interesting. Um, but I, I so... You know, I think what we want is uh, an expectation that government has a part in doing what many businesses have had to do in order to survive. And I think this is a moment to rethink how we structure some of these uh, parts of the budget that require now more than half of the budget going into uh, unfunded pensions. Um, systems, I mean, the, the MBTA is a great example of a system that um, has been a need for, of recalculation, reimagining for decades. Um, it's not the only one. So I think I think we have a smart uh, uh, brain trust in Massachusetts that can help think through and reimagine how we do things differently. But these are systems that are going to require updating uh, to reflect the realities of a 
post-pandemic 21st century economy that competes globally and nationally. And, and because those competitive choices are a lot easier to make now, I think the stakes are higher for us to get the systems change uh, recalculated in a way that uh, match where, where our priorities are in Massachusetts and match our ability to pay for them. We want to have a healthy and attractive product, if, if, if I can put words in your mouth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're getting close to the end of our show. I appreciate your time today. Um, many of uh, the le- legislators on Beacon Hill listen to Hubwonkin. Uh, if you had their ear uh, for this moment, uh, is there anything in particular you want to, uh, to, to say to them? I also say you, you mentioned we've got some a huge stimulus coming down the pike, uh, $1.9 trillion at the federal level, $10 billion of which I think I've read has, is going to come our way. Uh, that may influence what you suggest uh, um, rather than new revenue, perhaps have it directed in a particular way to the legislator. But what would you say in, in our, our closing uh, remarks to legislators who may be listening and, and, and care about keeping the product healthy and attractive? Well, as, as the High Tech Council has been uh, focused on throughout this pandemic with a, a series of uh, thought leaders coming on to our new COVID uh, virtual roundtables, and now we're, we've, we've launched a future work series over the next two months, We recognize that COVID-19 has and is fundamentally changing our economy and our future of work. Those changes are gonna continue to evolve throughout 2021 and probably into early 2022 at a minimum. I think prudent policy makers will refrain from advancing permanent changes until the ramifications of these fundamental shifts are more fully appreciated. And it, you know, there's, there's no crisis because, as you mentioned, Joe, we've got more federal money coming. Uh, we may have a surplus as a result of all this new federal money. And I think that's an opportunity for us to rethink our priorities. We're not going to cut taxes. We're not asking for tax cuts. Uh, what we really think we need in Massachusetts are the conditions that support job recovery and a sustained economic recovery. You can't sustain the economic recovery with uh, long-term, far-reaching, permanent policy changes that do not directly connect with or reflect the changes going on in the underlying economy. You got to get that a hand your hands around those changes first, and then align the policy uh, to build off of that and nurture it. So that product, you know, has been a pretty darn good product. We've got in Massachusetts back in the rearview mirror. Uh, <clears throat> but a few wrong policy twists mean that that, that product can lose its luster uh, pretty quickly. And everything in this century happens really quickly now. Absolutely. So in our final uh, uh, moments here, uh, how can uh, our listeners find Massachusetts High Technology Council or find you or join or learn more about what you, what you do? So uh, a lot of the uh, content that we've been developing can be found on our website at mhtc.org. Pretty straightforward. You'll find uh, a lot of the work that we're doing, not only on COVID-19 and economic recovery, but on uh, diversity, equity, and opportunity, and our Women in Leadership Initiative. These are all critically important programs helping create a more robust, diverse culture within and across all of our member organizations. Uh, so we'd love to hear from those of you who are just hearing about us for the first time. And the best way to get a little bit more info and reach me is through our website at mhtc.org. 
Well, I appreciate it. That's very, uh, very good uh, uh, information. Uh, so we'll wrap up the show. Thank you very much for your time, Chris. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I think our listeners have learned a lot. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Joe. Have a great day. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It will be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your local podcatcher. It would be wonderful if you write us a favorable review or offer a five-star rating. And of course, it's always welcome for you to share us with friends. If you have ideas for me or comments or suggestions about future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.